Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what's good, man? I'm good, Sam. How you doing? Episode number one fucking hundred, baby. We one hundred music business podcast, baby. Keeping it a hundred, but now we actually on the hundredth episode, man. We're so grateful for each and every one of you guys that's been tuning in, absolutely supporting. Uh, It has been such a fun ride. We've been able to have so many conversations, but none of this would be possible if it weren't for you guys listening, tuning in, letting us know how we're helping you. Um, We, I mean, we, we. Love having these conversations, but it's it's very much a collaborative thing, and, and your support yep. is the the fuel that keeps this engine running, baby, or yeah, or man. the or the Tesla equivalent and keeps this battery <laughs> powered. Um, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's been two years, you know, and that's a lot because you know we've been growing every day, and we've been growing with our community, and it's it's been really great doing this. It's been really great getting to pick people's brains and and doing this for a living on the side, and you know. Super grateful for you, Sam, that we've been able to do this for as long as we have. And, you know, all the, the, the best is yet to come. And I'm super glad that we got to one hundo. There it 100. is. One <laughs> We do have a, a special guest on this week's episode to help us celebrate. This is Mr. Anthony Martini. He was a 2019 Billboard R&B hip hop power player. He has some incredible stories in this week's episode. He started as an artist himself and then ventured into management. He helped discover and help Tyga pick up his early traction and, and, and kind of develop into the artist he is today. Over time, he decided he wanted to get into the record label business and launched and is now the president and CEO of Commission Records. They've signed Lil Dicky, Made in Tokyo, IDK. Uh, he's also a partner at Royalty Exchange, which is offering a really unique model for uh, helping sell essentially royalties and some of the revenue and, and rights surrounding artists and, and the art, actually. So I think this was a really incredible episode. I think uh, he has some incredible stories. He goes in depth into the story as to how he helped save that money by Lil Dicky, uh, come together as a song. Um, little quick little cliff notes. Uh, at one point we, point, we talk about how he had to put $10,000 cash in an Uber to send to one of the artists to help lock in the feature. Um, so, I mean, it, this, this episode is jam-packed. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, man. Honestly, like, if I had to say what this episode portrays in one word, it's hustle. He hustled so much. And the stories that we hear just show what that hustle looked like. You know, he took a lot of risks early on um, and they and they paid off, but he took those risks. And I know, you know, we talk about taking risks a good amount on the podcast and it was super refreshing to hear someone as successful as him take those risks and then, and then work out. So um, a lot of values here, a lot of lessons learned, not only from the tactics he told us about closer to the beginning of the episode, but also the stories he was telling us closer to the end. And I'm really excited for people to hear it. Worthy, definitely, of the 100th episode. And uh, yeah. Super grateful that we were able to get him on and, and that people could hear his uh, his viewpoint and opinion on on several different things. Thank you guys for for tuning in as, as always. We made it to a hundred. Who knows what's next? Uh, we ain't slowing down anytime soon. So thanks again. But without any further ado, Mr. Anthony Martini. Anthony, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. You know, just uh, out, out here in the cold in New Jersey in this this snowstorm right now. 
I know, man. It's it's funny. I was talking to my girlfriend and I was like, you know, maybe soon the winter will be shorter and we'll get warmer weather earlier. And that doesn't seem to be the case, because according to The New York Times, this is one of the worst snowstorms in the history of New York City. So uh, there's yeah. that. But glad, glad, glad you're hanging in there. You, know, you, you guys are keeping me warm, so it's all good. <laughs> How sweet. <laughs> um, I guess to get started, you know, one thing that I immediately noticed about your career is that it's very long and very successful. Um, so obviously that's a feat that not a lot of people can accomplish. So I guess right before we get into it, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, what are some of the value sets and things that you learned along the way that kind of contribute to your longevity? Um, I mean, I guess like one of the, overarching things that, that just like anyone in the business should sort of adhere to is, you know, what comes around goes around. It's it, it, like people say it all the time, but it, it, it really is true. And this is a small business, you know, like it's a big business, but it's kind of a lot of small circles. And so if you're in it long enough, you keep running across the same people You're you know, years later, someone that you mm-hmm. dealt with five years ago. And just, so, you know, like I've always, you know, like I, I, I always operate just from a, a point of, uh, honesty and transparency in general. And so it's served me well in, in the past, like where, you know, people have always been able to say like, oh, like, and you know, Ant's a good dude. Like I fuck with him. Even if like, maybe we had something, a deal, or maybe, you know, didn't do something a few years ago, but then it came around. Like, I, I think the important part is that I, I've always sort of, uh, you know, treated people how I wanted to be treated. And, right. you know, you, you see after a certain amount of time that that, you know, that actually does come into play down the line. And, uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I, I have adhered to those sort of principles from the beginning. So, you know, I think part of that comes from what, like kind of getting into my start, you know, like I started out as an artist, um, you know, and I, I was in a band and it was, it was the dream to get signed and make it and, you know, all that kind of shit. And so, you know, when I, when I got into the business on the business side, I always kind of looked at it from the artist's perspective. And, you know, I also think it gave me a different, uh, you know, a different perspective in general, how I handle things, because I've seen it from their side. I've seen pretty much all the things that they, an artist would go through, even from like the smallest levels of, of like sleeping in a van and playing in front of like 10 people and the shitty show on a Tuesday in some middle of nowhere town and like the morale and to all the way up to, you know, playing in front of 10,000 people and being on you know TV and that, that kind of shit. So, yeah, I think it gave me a certain, uh, certain way to relate to the artists that I was dealing yeah. with. You know, like I understand that, you know, when you're dealing with artists, this is their life. This is their career. They only have one career. Um, as a person on the business side, you're going to deal with tons of artists, but they only have one, you know, one career themselves. So you got to treat it, you know, sort of with, with that, you know, preciousness to, 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 you know, really kind of take care of, uh, of these artists livelihood. And I've always approached it like that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think that that empathy definitely um, not only creates awesome partnerships for them, but just it enables you guys to, to really help succeed at a higher level. In that same vein, like, what do you think both having operated on the artist side as well as on the business side are some of these traits that are exuded by some of the top artists? I know you've had a, the opportunity to work with a handful of different artists next that have really gone on to achieve great things. So when you think about like pattern matching or, or different traits or characteristics that those those acts exude, what comes to mind? Um, one thing I, I've noticed that is, is definitely a pattern is uh, work ethic trumps talent a lot of times. Um, you know, I, I've dealt with artists that 
have been super talented and maybe didn't put in the work that they should have. And they, I've seen them only get so far where there's maybe been artists that were less talented, but were in a studio every day and always like interacting with fans and doing all these things. And they've gotten a lot further. Um, and, you know, I think as you start to see different, different artists that are achieving at high levels, you start to see that as like a, a common pattern where like all, all the guys and, and, and girls at the top are, you know, they're, they're hustlers. They're putting in the work. This is not a game to them. It's a sport and, you know, it's competitive. And, and the ones that treat it like that usually seem to win. And, and the ones that sort of, you know, kind of let it be, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens, whatever happens, happens, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess kind of like on that same vein, but kind of to the opposite of that from the perspective of um, like a manager and someone who has been an artist before, what do you think uh, managers and labels should try to relate to the most at being, you know, as you were an artist yourself, now you're an executive. What's kind of something that you think uh, managers and artists kind of forget about, about being an artist that would help them be a better manager or be a better label head or executive. Like, um, I guess in my opinion, for example, uh, I think I think people forget about that when when people are releasing music, they have to be in like a really vulnerable place. So, um, in everything that I do, I always try to remember that this artist is coming from a very vulnerable place at all times when they release this music. What do you What do you think are some traits that you think people don't pay attention to necessarily as much as they should? Um, I mean, I think from, from the business side, it's really approaching uh, the interaction with like a balance, you know, you know because you, you can't, there, there's definitely, there definitely has to be a true balance between, you know, making the music and the art, uh, you know, a product and making, letting it be true to the art, you know what I mean? And, and like right. the balance almost, you have to, a lot of times it's like Jedi mind tricking the artist into not even knowing you know, why you're trying to do a certain thing or maneuver them in a certain way. Cause you don't like my, my approach has always been like, I, I never wanted to get the artist out of the zone. And, you know, like if maybe they, you know, they need a new, another single, you know, they're coming off a big single and they need another single to kind of keep it going. You can never go in a studio and be like, we need a hit. Like, it's time to make a hit because as soon as you start talking like that, it's never happening. Right. So you, you sort of have to like manage the process in a way that the artist isn't aware that, you know, they're kind of moving in a certain direction or, you know, like, cause you don't want to interrupt the flow that they have, but then, mm -hmm. you know, there, there is that balance because you, you, you do need some of these things to keep them, you know, profitable and, and successful so they could continue being an artist. So, you know, that, that's always the balance. And I, I think some managers and some labels go too hard one way and, and forget about the human side of it. And like, even just the psychological side of it, you know what I mean? Like, like putting, putting the pressure on, artists sometimes uh it's it's counterproductive um yeah and so you know like i've always kind of approached that with a little more sensitivity you know the thing is i'm actually a pretty hard manager like I, i'll always be upfront and and blunt with you and, and kind of tell you like it is which you know sometimes artists don't like but when it comes to the creative side you know like i always maintain that sensitivity because i understand like they need to be in a certain zone to, to make the best work. And it's about how do you help them stay in that zone? Right. It kind of goes back. And this is just a question based on kind of what you said, how you said work ethic makes the best artists kind of stick out. Do you think that work ethic ends up giving the managers and, and labels more 
of what they need in order to do their jobs. Like I know you said, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to rush artists into work or anything like that. But I do feel like when I hear about really successful artists who have really big work ethics, it's like, oh man, they were in the studio until 5 a.m. for a whole week. You know what I mean? So it's almost kind of putting managers and labels in positions where they don't even have to be like, yo, we need another single. It's more so like, which one is going to be the next single? Because we know you got the records. You know what I mean? Do you think that kind of enables everyone else to do their job when, when an artist has work ethic like that? So you don't have to put yourself in those positions? Oh, for sure. I mean, that 100% makes it easier when, you know, like when the artist uh, matches your intensity from a work perspective, that makes it, you know, so much easier. If you, if you almost have to drag them to success, it, it's, it's, it's grinding and it, like it rarely ever works in the long run. Um, so I guess that's part of even like the identification process of like when you're, when you're finding talent and kind of looking for new things, you know, part of the, almost like the diligence when you're meeting them and getting a sense of like who they are as a person, uh, you know, you see if they have that eye of the tiger, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, all right, like, I can tell that this person is going to be going hard and that's going to enable me to do my job. You know what I mean? And, and, and you kind of, you know, you go from there. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to the side of discovering artists, I mean, I know for uh, like you founded the management company. Uh, can you talk kind of venturing into founding the management company and dis- discovering some of the artists that you did? I know Tyga is definitely one that's a little fa- MVP fan favorite, somebody I definitely uh, is a big fan of. Um, and Am, I mean, can you talk about launching that company and how you went about finding artists? Yeah, well, you know, the management side of things. Um, I started out in management really because it was the the lowest barrier to entry. Um, you know what I mean? And I also felt like I had sort of a, enough experience you know, being on tour and doing like I was kind of the business guy for my band. You know what I mean? So I, I, I took that time almost to learn the business and I read as many books as I can, you know, like all everything you need to know about the music business, Donald Passman, like all those fucking books. I'm like, you know, <laughs> reading the shit about contracts and, you know, thinking I know what the fuck I'm doing. And like, you know, I'm 18, like, bro, I got 19. this. I read it from front to back, bro. That's I right. got it. Seriously. <laughs> the things I think about now, like I actually, there's this one story in particular that I always think about because I'm like, what an idiot. Um, <laughs> like, there was a point when we had a bunch of labels like chasing us and trying to sign us, you know, major labels and stuff. And like, I'm an 18 year old, 19 year old kid at this time. I just read my books and I, I'm like, all right, I know what I'm going to ask for. I'm going to, I'm going to, fucking try and ask for a licensing deal and all this shit. So I'm like talking to fucking Epic records about, you know, I'm like, we're some shitty fucking band. And like, you know what I mean? Like they're just kind of, you know, the A&R sniffing around and I'm talking about like, yeah, we, we want to do a one-off. We want to do a licensing deal. I'm a 50 record, a P&D. Like I'm just saying all this shit where I'm thinking back now, like if, if I was talking to some young artists and they were saying all this shit, I would have hung up the phone. I was like, this guy is a fucking idiot. And so, you know, it's just funny but it, it, it's funny now kind of looking back at that, but like that, that those were all, you know, those were all experiences that, that did teach me the business. And so, like I said, when it, when it came time to actually get like a real job on, on the industry side, um, you know, I didn't have any real connections. I, I didn't go to college. I didn't do you know, shit. So it was kind of like management is easy enough because if you could find something and, and start like bringing opportunities, now you're a manager. You don't need a special degree. You don't need, you know, you don't need any type of cosign or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's, that's really how I got my start and in, in why management was like the first step was because it was the only thing I could really do at the time. And then, you know, sort of started pivoting from there. 
Mm-hmm. And then in, in that vein, what, I mean, having worked on the management side and then having launched kind of commission records and operating on the label side, well, I know a lot of, there's a lot of kind of young entrepreneurs that see uh, passed down both. Like what excites you having evolved into the label side of the business versus the management side? Um, well, you know, the, the thing, the, one of the reasons why I sort of transitioned to was uh, like, I've just been doing management for so long at that point. And like, I just felt fucking tired, man. Like, you know, like, man, <laughs> like especially, you know, listen, managing Taiga was a fucking a roller coaster. You know what I mean? It's like, you, you know, you're flying. It was over. one of your favorite ups and one of your favorite downs. Shit. I mean, I don't know. There was a lot. I mean, one of the, you know, I guess like definitely uh, there was a lot of ups, but it, it, I mean, it's all sort of, even the downs were kind of like, Blessings yeah, they're, always, they're always like stories that when you look mm-hmm. back, like, you know, there, there was, there's been plenty of times where I'd be in another country flying out there to start a tour and then, you know, find out that like he didn't get on his flight and we're canceling the tour and not like I'm in some <laughs> dealing with a promoter that's like ready to fucking kill somebody. And, you know, like, <laughs> like, that, that happened a lot, but then, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of good times, like different, you know, award shows and, and big performances, big t- arena tours, things like that. So, um, you know, it was a great overall, uh, you know, it was a great overall experience. It gave me a lot of stories and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really look at anything as a down. It's all positives, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is super interesting too, coming from a management background is that you have to just learn so many different sides of the business, right? Like it's, it's pretty much the Donald Passman book, but in, in real life, <laughs> like you have to, you have to learn licensing, you have to learn, you know, artist relations, you have to learn label, label services. All these things are all, are all a part of what being a manager is because you're, you're, you have to, you're like the brain not the not the brain, but I guess like you know you're putting the you're managing of, the, of the team or like the, exactly. the way I kind of I always looked at it was like the artist is like the owner of the company, but you're the CEO of the company. Right. So, you know what I mean? Like they're hiring you to run the company. It's their they they own it, but like now you have to oversee all the other teams and departments and make sure everyone's working right. towards just the, the same goal. And so, yeah, you, you do as a manager, you do have to have a, a well-rounded uh, knowledge base, and and you know. I mean, even for me, like during there was there was times where I, w- I literally was doing everything. You know, I was like I was I was the booking agent, I was, <laughs> I was, I was the manager, I was the fucking A and R doing doing all of it. I mean, shit, I was even the fucking graphic designer for a while. You know what I mean? Like that that literally anything that needed to be done, I was ready to do. And that's that's what I think managers they have to have that attitude. It's like you know, if no one's gonna do it, if you're not gonna do it, so you you know, like. Find a way to do it. Find someone to do it, or you just have to do it yourself. And and you know, like I said, I, I did literally uh, make like mixtape covers, single covers, even some big ones, like ones you know, you had the song Justin Bieber. I did single cover. You know what I mean? But like <laughs> you know, early on, uh, you know, his mixtapes. Part of the part of the part of the reason why like things even started happening initially with him was like it's kind of all a lie in, in the beginning because when I started working with him, no one. No one really knew he was. He was brand new, um, and people kind of slept on him. And, and you know, he was just like this young kid from LA that you know it was just like the blog era, and, and he wasn't fitting in that that blogosphere of like these that, that certain type of rap that was popular. And so people didn't really want to pay attention. And what I started doing literally was just telling people that he was signed to Young Money, 
um, when he wasn't and like, you know, and, and, and like putting Young Money's logo on the mixtape, sending it to Not Right, and like, you know, straight up Google images, fucking Young Money logo, fucking rasterize that shit, put it on the back. And like, but, but the crazy part is it actually, it was it like, it willed it into fruition. Because yeah. One day Wayne just called him and was like, yo, meet me in Miami. Like, because the whole story kind of happened. Uh, it was around the VMAs. Uh, the year that was in Vegas, like this was like maybe 2006 or seven. Um, and the company I was at at the time, uh, Crush, they had, they had the band Fall Out Boy, Panic at the Disco, all these bands. And so, you know, like I kind of like forced Tyga onto a remix of one of these Fall Out Boy songs. And it was like, you know, Fall Out Boy, Tyga, Lil Wayne, Kanye. But it was like 20 people on the remix. So I was like, yo, let Tyga at least get a verse. Like, you know, I, we squeezed them on. He, he got a verse. And then that year, Fall Out Boy was performing at the VMAs and, you know, I just flew Tyga out on my own money. I didn't even really have money to pay for the flight at the time. I was just like, yo, you just got to be in the mix, like meet some people. Right, right. And, um, what happened was Kanye ended up getting his own suite. This was like in Vegas at the Palms and everyone had their own suites for their performances. So Kanye had his own. So now he wasn't going to be performing the remix with Fall Out oh, Boy. I, I think I remember that one too, actually, now that you're like explaining it. I, yeah. I, I remember that one at the Palms seen on TV. Yeah. And so, so the original performance was supposed to be him and Wayne, Kanye and Wayne performing, you know, with Fall Out Boy and Panic Disco as the performance. But then Kanye pulled out last minute because he had his own slot and there was an open slot and Tiger was there. And so I was just like, fucking get on stage, like, you know, like, yo, this is your shot. Do it. <laughs> and so, you know, Damn. ends up like... <laughs> They did sound check and then, you know, as sound check, it kind of worked out. And we thought, you know, maybe they cut them before commercial when it actual performance happened, but they didn't. And I remember MTV posted, uh, like, you know, the thumbnail of the video with Lil Wayne and Tiger was standing next to him on stage. You know, it says like VMAs and this and that. So I took that and started sending it to all the blogs. I'm like, look, new young money artist, Tiger Bubba. And so that's when I started taking <laughs> the money logos because it was like, see, I'm not lying. He's right next to him. You know, <laughs> You know, they did exchange numbers, but Wayne never responded to him like for like a year. And then just one day, he was just like, "Yo, what are you doing? You know, meet me, meet, come to Miami. I'm about to start tour. Like, let's go in the studio." And so, boom, I went to Miami and then ended up signing with Young Money. Um, and and it was you know, but it all sort of started from just like willing this shit to happen and and just doing whatever you had to to kind of like make like make it real. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's like, I fuck with that story a lot because it just shows that you kind of like bullied them in there. And that's what managers like have to do. You know what yeah. I mean? It, it's just, it's at, at all costs, your artist has to be successful. You know, yeah. like you, you, and you have to find, like no one is going to, no one's going to give you an opportunity ever. Like mm -hmm. rare. You, you, you can't expect it. If they do, it's sort of cherry on top. But like you have to be finding an angle always like you got to be looking for that opening. It's like being a fucking running back and you just got to find the hole and just hit the hole. Like, you know what I mean? And like, right. might not be where the play is called originally, but kind of a ball here. carrier vision. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> like, you know, like I do, like I compare the music business a lot to sports, you know what I mean? Cause I feel like there's so many similarities. Um, and like, that's just how I, I see it is like, you know, the play might not always work as drawn up, but you know, you got to find the hole, hit it. And then, you know, maybe you score a touchdown anyway, but like, you can't just, stop and say, oh, the place fucked up, time out. You know what I mean? Like, you just got to keep keep going. Yeah, or like the lineman didn't do his job. 
You know, yeah. like at the end of the day, you're gonna have to get to the touchdown. You have to score, <laughs> so, so that doesn't it doesn't matter. You get like that. when you're dealing with so many people and and different you know teams and different departments, like there's always gonna be people that aren't doing their job. You know what I mean? So you got to make sure you're doing your job. The artist is doing their job, and and you're just setting them up to at least be always be in the right position to capitalize on on an opportunity. And I knew you mentioning the blog days. Um, like I definitely remember coming across Tygon like two dope boys back in those days. What um, but and like now, blogging as a, as a means of promotion is like borderline. Not I mean, not even really borderline, but probably not going to like ma- like make or break an artist in their promotional strategy. Yeah. What to you do you feel have been some of the most important or, or shifts that you've seen take place? Um, where do you feel that like consumer and fan attention is the most right now, and where it's it's critical that artists are spending their time and kind of channeling their teams to hit the right holes online. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot. The, the thing is, right now, now, a lot of the former like avenues of promotion are gone. Really, you know, what I mean, like, the, like now, it truly is democratized in a way where the power isn't it is in the artist's hands. You know what I mean? Like with, you, with social media, you have that direct connection to fans, and I think the artists that leverage that the best are the ones that are the most successful. You know what I mean? I, I think um, you know something I talk about a lot, which is you know, get into these kind of like artist business type conversations. Like, you know, a lot of artists come out and they try and like, they try and be too cool. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I think like there's something important to having a mystique, but then sometimes that mystique actually makes it so that like no one fucking discovers you. No one cares about you. They don't know anything about you. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, I think like if you're the weekend, mystique is cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like, until you get to that point, like you need to be figuring out how to engage with their fans. And I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, social media has definitely just made it where you can have that direct connection. And I think not a, not a lot of artists really know how to use it. They think it's just about like flexing or, you know, just posting when they need you to go check something out. But, you know, this is your, this is your like fan club. You know what I mean? You should be cultivating that and and not even just relying on just one platform either. It's like, you, you should be, talking to your fans, interacting, you know, create conversations and, and like really make them, you know, think about like what is going to make them like you as a, as a artist, not just a song, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like every, a lot of people have good songs and you can put out good songs and, you know, they'll get on a playlist and, and you'll get some streams, you know what I mean? Like, that's great. That's like the name of the game. But like, how do you build a long-term artist? You have to, people have to buy into your character in a way. You know what I mean? And so like whether, and like when I say character, that doesn't even mean like some fake shit, some corny shit. It's like literally you kind of have to do a, you know, like a brand assessment of yourself and say like, all right, what are my strengths and weaknesses? Like what do people see me as? And then sort of lean into those things. You know, like even like Jay-Z has a character, you know what I mean? Like he's like the business guy. He's like the entrepreneur rapper, the ball, like, you know, so like he, plays into that. And that's what people love him for. You know, 50 Cent has his character, you know, fucking Lil Pump, Takashi, like the, the ones that are like the biggest characters always are the ones that break through the most. Cause you got to think like there's thousands of artists out there trying to make it. And like a lot of them sound the fucking same. Like, so what's going to make you stand, stand out? Um, I think having a really tight knowledge of yourself and your brand and what your fans react to. And then you, you know, engage with them. Like, Go into the comments, talk to them, post things, ask their opinion. Like, what do you think about this song or this song? Should I drop this one? What should I, you know, that sort of thing 
increase that cult following that you need to sort of take you from just being like, oh, like his music's cool to be like, I love that artist, you know? Mm. I think that's what sort of um, contributes to the rise of, you know, quote unquote bedroom pop is that, you know, these people, you know, the ones that I'm thinking of are vulnerable on social media in the same way that everyone else is. Like they post, they're the, they're the people that post, uh, you know, selfies in the mirror the same yeah. way that other people do. And the, and the music that they make sounds like, you know, it was, it was a demo It's fire, but, but, it, but it's not, it sounds like, like, like that, like bedroom pop, like people, like people made it and the lyrics are ultra vulnerable and things like that. And I think people, want the exact version of that, but on social media as well, a lot of the times too. Um, like I, I, I think being like too polished, like you're saying, mm-hmm. can come off as ingenuine now because people want to feel like they can connect on a level that's sort of similar to theirs. Um, I mean, honestly, that, that's why I think TikTok has, you know, really taken off as a platform in general because it's not polished. And, and like right. everyone just sees you, they see you in your fucking living room, in your kitchen. Like it just, it, it humanizes you in a way where like people respond to that and it's different from like the Instagram which is more like a facade that's your fake life of all like you're only posting the cool shit but TikTok is a little more like raw so I think that's why you know almost like that next generation of of social media consumers are, are really you know TikTok is the dominant platform right right, now. right absolutely um, I want to talk a little bit about Lil Dicky mm-hmm. because uh Lil Dicky is one of the more interesting rappers that I have ever heard, even since even since even since I first heard him, you know, years and years ago. Um, I was watching his TV show, Dave, and obviously a lot of it revolves around him getting signed to a record label. And it made me like really interested in what that story was like. And you obviously have a firsthand account of of what that story was like. Mm-hmm. So I guess can you kind of tell me what attracted you to his music and what that partnership looked like and how it came together? Because uh, I think it's, I think he generally, I don't even want to say left field because when people say left field, it sometimes comes off as being weird. And I don't think that at all. I really just think he's a unique artist. And and I, I'm just wondering kind of, you know, what were some of the, what were some of the keys to why you decided to work with him? And, and what did that next step look like? Um, yeah, like he's, he's definitely, Lil D- Dicky is one of those examples of, you know, really kind of assessing the artist and seeing like, do they have that it factor? You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. when, I, when I mentioned like Eye of the Tiger, like he he had that, and that was the thing mm-hmm. that, that drew me to him immediately, even more so than the music. Because when I first when I first heard him, he he only had like one or two songs out on YouTube. He had that ex boyfriend song, which I thought was good, but like it was kind of corny to me. You know what I mean? Like I was kind of like, all right, like you know, I could tell he could rap, and he could obviously tell the story like it was clever, but like. Let me let me see what's really there. And so when I met him, you know, he had such a clear vision of where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do, and like almost like a fucking five year plan from the start. And you know, like it just reminded me of like, man, like, like he's like he reminded me of like Kanye, like the way that he was talking about shit and like so confident. I was like, there's no way that he's gonna lose. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna bet, I'm gonna bet the house on him, like. And so, you know, that, that's what ended up happening. Like I started out, um, you know, as, a, as his manager, like we were, you know, it was like a management thing. And then, you know, I'd seen, uh, I'd seen so many uh, like record label situations go bad when the artist was unique. Um, 
And so that's why, and like, you know, also dealing with Tyga at that time, you know, he was signed to cash money. It wasn't a great relationship. We were trying to get him out of the deal. He was sort of stuck. And like, even, even, you know, this was part of the catalyst for me starting a label was like dealing with what we were dealing with with Tyga and he was signed to a major label and just, we were operating completely like an independent label, even though he was signed to a major label. Like I was putting out mixtapes on empire all day. Like, and we were you know, like, we'd get cease and desist and universal would be like, take it down. And empire would be like, you want to take it down? I'm like, nah, fuck that. Keep it up. And then we just keep it up. And, <laughs> and so like, you know, just kept trying to get him out of this deal. Cause they also owed him money. Um, and you know, like I'm chasing Birdman for the money and like flying to fucking Miami and waiting outside his condo until three in the morning. And then he's like, yo, can we meet tomorrow? And, you know, like that kind of shit for weeks and weeks. And so I was like, this is fucking bullshit. And so I already had assembled my own team, you know, because that was the one thing about Tiger. When you compare him to a lot of these other um, young money, cash money artists that were signed during that whole like period, you don't hear about any of them really anymore. He's the only one. And part of the reason was he was never afraid to keep reinvesting in his own career, even if he wasn't getting the return on it money wise. You know, so we were shooting videos, paying out of our own pocket going to radio, paying for radio promo out of our own pocket, like fucking putting out, you know, and that's part of the reason why I was saying like, fuck that. We're not taking down these mixtapes because that was generating, I was using that revenue to put back into marketing him to keep him relevant, keep him alive. You know what I mean? Even though, you know, universal cash money wasn't really, you know, pushing him at the time. And so that's sort of, you know, that situation combined with, I also was managing this group, Chitty Bang, um, who, you know, they had a, huge hit in the UK. They were from here, but like... Yeah, I used, I used to be a big fan. Yeah, so they were signed to Capital here, and we were just having a lot of problems with the label here, because they, they didn't understand this new wave of hip-hop. Like, it wasn't right. fitting in, in, like, the cookie-cutter you know, template that they had at the time. But meanwhile, I remember there was a point where Chitty Bang was selling more singles every week than Katy Perry. We were selling, like, 40,000 singles a week off, like, nothing. Like, just, like, right. internet. MySpace fucking buzz. Like, you know what I mean? And Katy Perry had all the push and, I, and it was just like, yo, why, why are you not getting behind this group? And it was all these like weird politics because they were signed through the UK label, Parlophone. Capital was treating them like an international artist and they were making less money off them because they were coming, technically coming from the UK, even though they were an American artist. So they weren't putting as much money into them because they're like, we're not making as much back. So fuck it. And so... Right. You know, dealing with that multiple kind of like major label situations with Dicky, I was like, man, like there's no way you're signing to a major label. <laughs> Fuck this shit. Like, you know what I mean? And, and there was labels calling, like every label was calling. Um, and I was just like, listen, man, like I know how to do this. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing it for Tiger right now, like unofficially. You know what I mean? Like we sort of have our own label, but we don't. Um, but like I know how to do it. Like we, you know, I had a radio promo team, I had PR, I had you know, like digital, like all, all the kind of like departments a la carte hired. And so that was, that was what we ended up doing. I went and got a distribution deal, um, you know, from, uh, from ADA and, you know, didn't really get any, you know, I didn't get any money. They didn't give me no advantage. It wasn't like a P and D like I read about in Donald Patrick. <laughs> it was just like literally like, all right, like, we'll give you a fucking, we'll, we'll let you put shit out the road. We'll take a big fucking chunk of it. Like if it works, it works. And so, but you know, again, like at the time, it's all, it's the only opportunity that was there. So I said, fuck it, we're going to work it. And so, you know, end up starting a label essentially off, you know, four little Dickies first album and people 
you know, people just thought I was fucking crazy. Like they were like, they're like, what's his name? Dick, little dick. Like what the fuck? They're like, what is this? <laughs> like, they're like, and, and I'm like, no, I'm telling you like this shit is going to be big. It's so funny. Like I have emails, like I can look at back from like 2015 where like, I'm like begging people to do like, put him on this fucking show, put him on this festival. Put it, like, and people are like, hell no. And now all those people are like, Oh, how do we get a little dicky? We need a verse. We need this. And, you know, it, but that's just how it is. Um, so yeah. So, you know, my time managing these artists and dealing with major labels and all the bullshit and the way and seeing how they kill momentum. And, and, you know, it's all about like this system that you don't really have control over for Dickie. I was like, we need to do this differently because I, if, if he was signed to a label at that time, uh, like a major label, it would have been like, you know, all right, go in the studio. We're going to get you with all the hottest producers and come out with a single. And then, you know, a year later, they'd be like, nah, I still don't have the single. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, and then your momentum's dead and then you fucking kill your whole career. So, you know, our plan was let's just get it out there and start working it. And, you know, he already was recording an album. We already had ideas and, and uh, you know, part of it was just getting out to the world and marketing it. And so that's, that's what happened. And I ended up, you know, just self-funding everything and, and basically like clearing out my life savings to like bet on this guy and People said I was crazy, but it ended up working. We, you know, we had a, a top ten urban radio single with Little Dicky, like, and you know, and, and and just like even the whole process of putting that all together, it was so much bullshit in the beginning. Like fucking trying to get Fetty Wap like at the height of his stardom. <laughs> like you don't even know. Like I had to fucking send cash in an Uber to Patterson, New Jersey, to fucking. <laughs> I was like. The story of that song (laughs) was like Fetty Wap was right before he started blowing up. And I I was hearing him in New York all the time, you know, on Hot 97. They were always playing it. And I'm like, damn, like I was trying to sign him. I'm like, yo, this shit is is about to be big. And and I was like, he's from Jersey. So, you know, like there's always, I always have love for Jersey people. And so, you know, ended up getting him right before Trap Queen really went went crazy and it was like $10,000. They wanted $10,000 feature. So I was like, all right, fuck it. Like it's worth it. And so the problem was his manager was like, yeah, but we need it like today. Like, cause you know, he's, he's gonna be in the studio tonight. And if not, we're leaving, we're gonna be traveling. We can't do it. And it, this was like Memorial day weekend, you know, whatever amount of years ago. And I had to leave to go to Europe with Tyga. Cause he had like shows Memorial day. Like he had some, it was like some holiday weekend. He had shows in like France. And so I had to leave. I couldn't bring the money to them. So I'm like, fuck, like, I need to get this done. And this has to happen today, but I can't not go on the flight with Tiger and then he'll fire me, like all that kind of shit. So I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to roll the dice here. <laughs> and so I went, took 10,000 cash out of the bank, put it in a fucking manila envelope, called it Uber, and was like, yeah, I need to just drop off to fucking Patterson and like, I was just like, hopefully the Uber guy doesn't fucking steal the money and, and like it gets there. Or and then hopefully it gets there and Fetty Wap's team isn't like, nah, I never came. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and uh ended up like I'm in the airport, I'm like on the plane, I'm watching the Uber fucking go on the on yeah. the app. Like, oh, shit. And like, please just get there. And then it like it got delivered. I text the dude, I'm like, yo, you get it? He's like, Yeah, we got it. He's like, we'll send it back tomorrow. And I'm like, all right, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> Christ, bro. So sense. So the thing is, the funny part is like we get the Fetty Wap verse like immediately. And then Rich Homie Kwan was like playing all this bullshit, like taking so long to fucking do it. His team's like, you know, bullshitting us. They wanted more money. 
And then like he has it for weeks and I'm chasing him every day. I'm like, bro, please just do this. And, you know, and the thing about Dickie is his shit is very specific. You know what I mean? So he, like he didn't understand at the time how this shit works. So he's like, he's like, yeah, I have these notes I want you to give to, to, to Quan. And he's like, <laughs> like, you know, it's like sort of, uh, he needs to make sure to touch upon this and this and this. I'm like, bro. He's not gonna fucking look at this shit. I was like, we'll be like I'll be lucky if we even get this back at all. Like, you know what I mean? Like, let's just get one step at a time here. And so he ends up doing it, and and like I knew, I was like, we're gonna get this shit back, and it's gonna be fucking horrible. I knew it. And we got it back and we listened to it. I was like, this is fucking terrible. I was like, this is like the worst verse ever. And so D- 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 Dickie's like, we can't use it. I'm like, bro. I just paid fucking 25 grand for this. I'm like, well, I'm like we're, we're using it. I was like, it doesn't fucking matter. I was like, this is, I was like, his name is all that matters. Let's just use the name. And, and like, you know, Fetty Wap, he's like, we already have Fetty Wap. We don't need it. I'm like, bro, we need to, we got to figure it out. And, and so I actually came up with the idea of like, why don't you just call him out on it being so like not on topic and just make it like funny. You know what I mean? I was like, you're funny. You could do that. Just like, I was like, we should just have the record go. Arr! And then you just be like, Yo, know, Quan, like, what the fuck are you even talking about? You know what I mean? And, and so he was like, he's like, oh, he's like, that, he's like, that'd be kind of funny. He's like, he's like, but he's like, do you think he'd get mad at me? He's like, you think he's gonna like, I don't want any trouble. I'm like, bro, who fucking cares? I was like, you probably never see him again. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll smooth it over. And so uh, he ended up doing it, and like he was, Dickie was very hesitant about doing that. And uh, I sent it to Quan's like team, and waiting to hear back, and they text me back like. He loves it. And I'm like, oh my God. So, this is fucking great. So then now we have all the, ver- everything's going. Now we got to shoot the video. That's a fucking nightmare. Because the, vi- the video, at this point now, Fetty Wap is out of here. Like now he's like, Trap Queen is the biggest song in the world. Now Fetty Wap's like, now he wants like triple just to do the video. I'm like, bro, come on, man. Like you already promised to do the video. I was like, just, you know, so we were trying to nail down dates or something to do the video, but he was just all over the place. And so literally... I, I, like I found fucking, you know, I'm looking on his, in, stalking his Instagram. I see he was, had a show, like he was doing a club appearance in LA. So I text, I, I text his manager. I'm like, yo, you in LA? He's like, yeah. I was like, you doing a club tonight? He's like, yeah, you want to pull up? I was in New Jersey, but I'm like, I'm like, nah, but I was like, can we send a camera real quick to like, just get this, you know, just get this hook. And he's like, ah, oh, man, he's like, <laughs> he's like, maybe he's like, all right. He's like, let's, because at this point it'd been weeks of me trying to get him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, just have him come and we'll see what we can do. And I was like, bro, just, we just need one, play the song one fucking time. Whatever we get, <laughs> you get. I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, you don't got to run it back, nothing. And so, the, ended up like ambushing him at the club. They played it. <laughs> didn't even, like, remember he did the song. He's like, like, who are you? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, Dickie's texting me like, yo, he doesn't even know who I am. I'm like, what? I'm like bro, just do it. His manager knows. Tell him, tell him Danny Sim. Like, <laughs> and so they end up just doing it. But then like Fetty Wops, oh, I remember this song. And he's like, I fuck with it. And then they ran it back a couple times. They, we got the footage. Um, and then Rich Homie Kwan's verse, we went to Atlanta to shoot it to kind of make it as easy as possible to avoid like problems of him missing flights and shit. So we go there and that actually kind of spawned part of the idea for the TV show was uh, like his interaction with Rich Homie Kwan was so fucking hilarious because we we're just like in the fucking hood in Atlanta, like at Rich Homie Kwan's grandma's house and fucking everyone has guns out everywhere. And, 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 Dave, and Dickie's like, is that a real gun? And like, Kwan's like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's like 
he's like, he's like, I feel really uncomfortable that you have these guns out. Like, he's like, what if one goes off? And it was so hilarious. Like, push out of water. I was like, this has got to be a TV show. <laughs> like, and and it should just be these kind of interactions. And so that that sort of like planted some of the seeds for that. But then you know we end up getting the whole song together, video done, and um, you know it starts it starts to do well. There's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's the, getting him off the ground was a lot, man. Like once we actually get everything done and the song is finally now, oh, like starting to go, starting to stream. We're, we're at radio, like they're liking it, like it's doing well. Then uh, I get a, like, I get a, I get hit up from someone at 300 and they're like, hey, little Dicky, they text me. And I don't want to name name, but like, so I was like, I was like, yeah. And I thought he was like congratulating me like oh little dicky congrats he's like he's like yeah he's like betty's not cleared so we're gonna need you to take that down and i'm like (laughs) i'm like i'm like he's cleared i cleared him through his his he was signed to a production company through his management company so like i got the clearance Mm -hmm. from them and 300 was sort of like you know they furnished it but like i already had it you know in my mind i had the clearance like the the manager company said they signed it lawyers everything but the problem was 300 was mad because they wanted to sign Little Dicky, and we didn't sign with them and did our own thing. And so they were trying to just flex, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so he's like, yeah, well, you know, he's like, you're going to have to take it down or you're going to get a cease and desist. So I was like, all right, you're going to have to give me a cease and desist, bro. Like, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm used to those. I get them from Universal all the time. <laughs> so, so what ends up happening is like, you know, we just keep it going and uh, ends up, you know, We've, we've sort of willed it through and, and 300 eventually caved on it because um, I used that Jersey connection. I was like, you know, to his managers, are, they're, they're street dudes from Jersey. And I'm like, bro, like, we had a deal, man. Like, I don't give a fuck about these fucking motherfuckers. Like, you need to tell them, you know. And so they kind of leaned on them and said, like, nah, this is what we want to do. We're doing it. And 300 had to back off. And then we end up, you know, having a top 10 single and, you know, went platinum and it sort of set Dickie up. And it, it was like, all right, this is the moment where now I, I was like, I should really think about transitioning to just being a record label instead of, you know, like the, man, the management. <laughs> cool. But it was like, I mean, even though this kind of was fucking hectic and chaotic, it was nothing compared to management. And the other part of it is, you know, it's a different idea. It's a different model um, that I thought was just interesting at the time. You know what I mean? I was like, this is fun. You know what I mean? Like kind of crafting this whole like, and, ha- and having the control over it. You know I mean? That was the part of the management side where it was frustrating. It was like, ultimately, the label had the control. And no matter what you had planned, they could just fucking, you know, nix it and kind of do whatever they want. Or you, you push back the release and everything. You know, like, you, you just have nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a label, I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff, which I, I thought was really... Actually, I thought it was just way more beneficial for the artist to, to be able to have a plan, put it together directly with, you know, with each other and then be able to execute on it. And, you know, we ended up having a bunch of success with, uh, you know, Dickie, that's that single went platinum. The album eventually went platinum. We had a bunch of, you know, other platinum singles. Like it's, I mean, he, he took off. And then from there, I just started looking at more band, uh, more artists to sign and, and, you know, just really just transition fully into being a label, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, first of all, that story is epic. <laughs> I commend you on that. Now it seems like a fun adventure. I mean, on the label side too. Another thing about label versus management that I it's kind of come to mind on my side too is like, um, 
I mean, there's actual some level of like true ownership and IP and, and kind of like earnings over a longer span of time. Whereas like management, like you could put like blood, sweat and tears into an artist. The next thing you know, it's like they're going in a different direction and all that works for nothing. Well, that, I mean, that's, that, that was definitely part of the thinking too. And, you know, I, I like with my experience with Tyga, you know, I, I basically found Tyga when he was like 16, you know what I mean? And like nothing going on. He was like sleeping on my couch. I was fucking paying his phone bill, like that kind of shit. And then, you know, right when shit started getting popping, it's like the typical story, like people get in his ear, manager. Like I was just a young manager, kind of like coming, we were coming up at the same time. You know what I mean? Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't like all in or successful or anything. And so, you know, he's out there and moving around. He's starting to get popular and the, the young money shit's happening and, all, you know, Rack City starts happening. And then people start coming around like, yo, like your manager should be here. If I was, if I was your manager, I'd do this, this and this. And so ended up, he fired me at a point like, like right, right around Rack City. Like right when shit was about to start, like all right when it was about to start making money, I was like, ah, oh, fuck, bro. Like, yeah. The fuck. Like I'm, I got a kid on the way. I'm like, the fuck right. am I gonna do? I can't pay my mortgage. Like this is all, the only money I was making. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah. like I had to figure it out. But you know, again, going back to like the business being a small business, you know, a year or two later, he called me back, and you know, he realized that I had more shit happening for him before he was famous and before anything was even happening, you know, like I was putting together opportunities that he wasn't even getting now that he had a hit. And mm -hmm. so like, he sort of fell for, you know, and this is like, it's human nature too. Like he was a young artist. He wanted to, this is his dream. And like, when you start seeing, you know, all like the Rolls Royces and Bentleys and private jets, and it, it, like it's intoxicating. So I could see why he would maybe be like, let me see what this is about. And, you know, he ended up coming back around and was like, you know, like, I want you to be my manager again. Like, you know, like you had more shit going on for me than, than, than you know, even during this period when I have a hit, and you know, like I fucked up. And, you know, I definitely was pissed when he first, you know, fired me, but it was kind of like, also, you know, I'm looking at this again from like a business perspective and, you know, like it's, it's business, not personal. And so, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, I, I saw an opportunity again to say like, all right, like, listen, he's, he's, he's doing well. I know I could add to this equation. I, you know, we already have a history. I didn't hate the guy. Um, and then we had our sort of our like second run and, you know, set him up to everything he's doing now. Like, honestly, like I got him out of the cash money deal empire did the deal, which empire, like the reason why he sort of has had this new success, like it taste and all that came from his empire days. Um, and the reason why empire, you know, even with empire, like people thought they were crazy for paying the money to get him out of this deal. You know, they had to pay, like they had to pay. Not that much money. It was, it was a lot of money, but not as much as you would think. And people were like, yo, why are you paying this for Tiger? Like, he's washed up, blah, blah, blah. But they knew because we were putting out mixtapes unofficially through them for like the past couple of years. And they actually had data to say, like, he's making, he was making like 150000 a month off just like Empire mixtapes that were just throwaway shit. No singles, nothing. Like, the thing is, he always streamed well. He always had fans, even without hits. Right. And so... For them, they're like, shit, we'll buy him out of his deal. And then they, they, they did it because they knew they'd make it back in less than a year. And then he ends up having taste and all the fucking big hits he has now. And then he went on to do like a big deal with Columbia. But like all that stuff was set up by, you know, like I got him out of that deal. I got him paid from cash money. I got him the TV show he wanted. Like all the things that happened, and that was all in the second run. And, you know, it was a good, it definitely was a good run. But like you said, with the label side of things, 
I already saw where it could go with management. Like there's no security. Even if you have a contract, there's nothing really you could do. Like you could sue. Right. You're not really going to sue. Like, you know what I mean? So with a label, you do own IP. And if you're building value, it's something that at least if the artist isn't there anymore, like you have this, you know, you have this IP that you could sell or do something with, you know what I mean? And, and so that's why it started to become a much more uh, just like interesting model. You know what I mean? Because it was sort of like management, but you own something. Yeah, right. For sure. I mean, which is interesting because I, I know like um, we're seeing lots of artists currently sell their catalog. I mean, I'd even be curious too around your kind of involvement with like royalty exchange and what the vision is for that sort of company. Because I mean, there there is some... Uh, I mean, it's interesting to think what the the second market and like aftermarket looks like for uh, that IP. Yeah. So, I mean, that like my whole career, like I've always tried to kind of see like the the writing on the wall before it kind of happens, you know what I mean? And and be able to adjust accordingly. And, and, you know, I like things that are disruptive. I like kind of being like anti-establishment and fucking like, you know, like I just have a problem with authority and like all that. <laughs> you know, like, you know, this all plays into my personality. He's like, you know, fuck the police. Yeah, like <laughs> everybody. <I'm fucking> everybody. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but yeah, so like with royalty exchange, you know, the thing is that that was really interesting. Um, you know, I had an investor, like a VC friend that was going to invest in royalty exchange. And he was like, he's like, check out this company. Let me know what you think of it. And, um, you know, I started kind of digging in and, I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I was like, I never heard of them, but like, they're, they're doing some real, real business. Um, and then, you know, I met, I met a couple of the people from the team, and I was like, this is a smart model. And so, you know, that my, my my buddy ends up investing in them, and kind of, you know, I didn't hear hear from him about it for like six to eight months, and then uh, he hits me one day, and I was like, you know, you should you should look at Royalty Exchange. You know, I think you could help, you know, kind of help them because they have the so the financial side of unlock, like they all come from like the financial world, but they don't really uh, have the connections in the music business mm-hmm. and you could help bridge that gap. And so, you know, what I thought was really interesting is again, kind of just seeing where the business is going. Yeah. Labels are cool because you, you could own IP and, and, you know, there's a multiple value you, you could assign to that and, you know, you could sell it. But the problem is, artists don't want to fucking sign deals anymore anyway. So, you know, like unless, unless you're a major label and you're giving them a, a million dollar, like it's either now it's either you're super, super early and you know, you take a couple of years to develop it or you're a major label and you fucking come in and here's $2 million. You have, you have one video that has a million views. Here's $2 million right now. I'm going to sign you and take, you know, so they sort of have boxed out a lot, a lot of the independence. And, you know, but the way I looked at it was artists really, they do want to be independent, you know what I mean? But the problem is it, it comes down to money usually and, and money, not just for an advance for your pocket, but like even, you know, if people sign to a, a label to, for, for like the marketing staff and the promotion, essentially you could hire that. You could hire those teams yourself if you have money to do it. And so, you know, why, why would artists want to continue getting into bad deals that they know are bad deals just for money? Like what if there was an alternate way to get you money to finance your career? And so that's when, when I started looking at Royalty Exchange and they were doing these catalog deals, which obviously like Hypnosis, Round Hill, all the space mm-hmm. is not just buying like catalog, which, mm-hmm. you know, on the Royalty Exchange side, the different thing that they do there is they don't own your catalog. It's, it's, it's just investors that are looking for a yield 
you don't have to give up ownership of any of your, of your IP, but you still get a check similar to like one of these catalog deals, but you, you keep your, you keep your rights. So that alone, I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. But then I kind of saw an opportunity to say like, well, why don't we get into the master side of it and essentially figure out ways to give artists advances to fund their own careers. And, you know, like anyone could go get distribution, all that kind of shit, but like we could give you financing so that you don't have to go sign a bad deal with, with a record label or with a publisher. And, you know, that's something that we're going to be announcing this, you know, pretty soon. Like we, we actually have a few in the works right now that like, you know, doing deals with these different distributors to say like, we can analyze it the same way we do a catalog deal. We could go in, you have an artist that's doing pretty well, making some money. There's some streams happening. You know, we could get you an advance based on X number of years of that money that we'll just give you now. And then when you pay it back, you pay it back and that's it. Like, but there's, you're not signing a deal. You're not, you know, the investor that gives you the money doesn't own your masters or anything. You own them. You know, you're just literally getting the money and they're getting a profit like when it's paid back. And so that's something that I think can be really powerful and, and disruptive. And, um, you know, that's, that's where we're kind of going right now with some of this to, to, to differentiate ourselves a little more from some of the similar players in, in space. Yo, that's kind of crazy because um, essentially what you're doing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is you're kind of following the same record label model that people are following, except there's no manpower involved on your end and you're giving artists the, the, the necessary capital that they need to succeed and to, and to have control of their careers. I mean, when I think about what you guys are doing, it almost reminds me of what labels are doing, except, you know, they own their IP and they're a little bit more um, free to do what they want with their money. It's, it's, it's sort of like a loose relationship with a label almost where it's like, you know, we'll just make money on your catalog. But in the meantime, like build your business with this money. And, you know, when it's time to give you the rights or not give you the rights back, but, you know, transfer what our ownership back to you, you know, we can just do that. I think that's like super, super interesting. Um, and the way it's structured, like, like I said, like there is no, you're not giving up any ownership of anything and you're not even forfeiting money that you're making in the meantime. Like, so basically right. like, if you're an artist, <clears throat> you know, say you're, you know, you're going through fucking TuneCore and you're just putting out your own shit and like, it's doing pretty well. Maybe you have some songs that get a couple million streams and like there's labels talking to you, but you know, like maybe you don't want to sign to a label yet. Like maybe, you know, you want to keep growing it and maybe, you know, maybe the plan is you want to sign to a label later, but not right now, but you still need that money to kind of, you know, take things to the next level. We could go in, analyze those plays, analyze the activity and say like, all right, we could get you $300,000 advance. And you just do what you want with it. And in the meantime, while you're paying it back, you know, you'll still be getting some of it. We figure out whatever the split is. You're, st you're still getting some money from your streams anyway. Half of it's going maybe to pay him back the advance. Half of it's going to you. Or if you want to pay it back early, you can pay it back early. And it doesn't matter. Like we usually kind of structure those as like a, a five-year type payback deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, say, say we give you a couple hundred thousand dollars and now you go and put it into your single and you blow it up and now you're, now you're doing fucking streams like crazy. Now every labels, there's a bidding war for you. Okay. Go sign that deal. And then when, and when they give you the $2 million, just pay us back our 200,000 and like, <laughs> you're good. And now right. you start, you, you basically, you got someone to front you some money to, to accelerate your career. And 
Now, even if you do want to go sign to a major label, you're coming in with more leverage. You're coming in in a better position because you've already proven that you could do it instead of them having all the leverage and you getting a shitty deal. So, you know, really, it's about, it's about empowering the artists in, in whatever way we can. Some artists want to stay independent and, and just, you know, kind of do their own thing DIY style. Some artists still will have that dream of, of going to a major label, but we could actually help you do it in a smarter way where you're not getting fucked. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's a, a positive step forward that is bringing more power back into the artist's hands. Um, on that note, man, thank you so much for coming on. I think uh, everything you've been up to uh, is is incredible. Excited to see how things only continue to evolve, evolve man. So thank you for uh, for coming through. Thank yeah. you so much, man. I appreciate you guys for having me. And yeah, this was, this is fun. And, you know, I hope I didn't curse too much. But, you know. nah. nah, man, we don't give a never, fuck. Never too much. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate you, bro. Awesome. Damn, well, that was, that was a pretty legendary episode. I think uh, super excited for what this man's up to. Um, really love his get the job done attitude to getting the job done. Yeah. Uh, hit, hitting the hole, if you will. Uh, sending sending the, the racks in the Ubers, if necessary. He literally handed off the racks. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like the ball carrier vision, except he handed off money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, I think this guy... Uh, does a good job and I think even just his, his personality like shows to me how he'd be able to easily flow well between artists and kind of the, the business side and command respect in both rooms so I think um, it's really valuable as well uh, what do you think Jordan? Yeah I mean I was super hooked this episode just on the stories he was telling you know um, not only not only were they super informative but his setups also were were great and kept, and kept me super intrigued so i'm glad we got to have him on uh he has a lot of experience obviously you know 15 years of experience all across the board from you know music licensing to label services to being an, an artist manager and, and you can hear that uh you know throughout the episode yeah one thousand percent well thank you as always everybody for tuning in we appreciate you we'll be back next week until then we out